You're listening to 3CR's Renegade Economist with your host, Carl Fitzgerald, as we investigate the role of landlords, bankers and natural monopolies through the eyes of the commons. Our birthrights, our birthrights. Okay, let's get into it, listeners. Uh, this week we have Laurie McFarlane. He's a co-author to the book that really has uh, pushed the land agenda up and onwards in the UK. It's called Rethinking the Economics of Land and Housing. You've heard me talk about it of recent. Uh, he he wrote the book with Josh Ryan Collins and Toby Lloyd, who were... Uh, I think I saw on Twitter has just been appointed into an official housing type role uh, under the conservative uh, leadership of Theresa May. So, uh, Laurie, did you ever think when you wrote a book that uh, a number of issues have come up uh, since this time that we'll delve into, but uh, things like Toby being picked up by uh, a government and, and taking some of these views uh, inside the corridors of power, it must be quite an exciting time. Yeah, definitely. Um, It's been really interesting, actually, I think, over the past 12 months or so, uh, just over that, actually, since the book has come out. And I think it's not just because of the book, but I think lots of other things, um, just the severity of the housing crisis in the UK and other things have meant that, 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 that I think there's a growing recognition now across the party, political party spectrum, that uh, not only is housing a big issue, but actually, if you want to understand housing, you need to understand land and and the kind of approach that's been taken by governments in the past here, just for the past decades, which is just well, let's just throw more money at trying to get people on the housing ladder, um, is just not is just not working. And so there's been a kind of a receptiveness to to, to new thinking on on land stuff. And I think you know Toby being you know appointed by the prime minister to come in and look at housing i think is yeah it's uh, it's it's a good sign it's a positive sign i think yeah so listeners uh, i've heard stories of uh, this book rethinking the economics of land and housing uh, in airports it's really got uh, quite some readership out there and uh, congrats to you guys for bringing a fresh new look to uh, this old old story and uh, there are so many good lines in the book i want to highlight but one of them uh, just sums it up uh, the paradox of land ownership now what does that one mean Laurie McFarlane well um, what we say we kind of refer to this paradox or the paradox of property or the paradox of of land ownership and and really this goes back to um, the very institution of private property and land so this isn't this isn't a new thing and obviously we often forget I think that the idea of being able to own land as private property is is actually relatively new in in, in sort of human history, but when that process began to happen in uh, in England to begin with, it really was a, a double edged sword in the sense that on the on the one hand, it obviously gave birth to you know capitalism and the kind of explosion of technological advancement and wealth and all the rest of it. But on the other hand, the process by which that happened was very very disruptive, um, and by nature. Giving people, some people, rights over what was previously common resource uh, means taking away the rights of others. And obviously, millions of people were driven off the land, often violently. And, and those who were allowed to to stay found that they now had to pay rent to landowners to access what they had previously been able to get uh, for free. So, on the one hand, land, we see private property and land is, is kind of freedom in the sense that you often hear from defenders of private property in the sense that it did enable the conditions for, for sort of wealth creation and the, and, the, and the development that followed. But at the same time, it had carried with it a sense of, of dispossession and of theft, if you like. And that's where we kind of say that the, the famous expression that 
by Pierre-Joseph Proudhon, the anarchist theorist, who said that property was both theft, which is his most famous line, but he also said that property was freedom. And we kind of argue that actually both of these can be true, and it's kind of tension between these things that actually is driving a lot of the, the tensions that, that in, in, in modern capitalism. And, and that this tension exists very much today in, in, in most countries. It just manifests itself in a very different way. And certainly in the UK and many other countries, the way that it's manifesting itself today most prominently is, is in the housing market, the dysfunctional housing market and the housing crisis that we see, uh, which is kind of putting a real dividing line through societies at the moment. It was really poignant how you pointed that out because we just hear this positive, positive story about real estate all the time and how it drives economic development. But uh, as you reveal in the book, it also drives inequality. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one thing we we haven't come to terms with, certainly in the UK, and I, I, I think it's similar in Australia as well, we look at the real estate market and you know increasing property prices as a as a good thing it's even as economists will, will will look at this as a as a sign of economic strength and obviously it's it's this process of house price inflation or land price inflation has has enabled lots of households to accumulate wealth they've they've kind of ridden the wave of rising property prices and that's that's provided huge amounts of benefits it's it's, it's enabled them to build up housing equity it's enabled them to do equity release to fund holidays or cars it's enabled them to borrow more money than to buy a second or third property. But obviously, the, then the flip side of that, the kind of dark side uh, of that is that people who, are, who don't own property, who are stuck in the rental market, have had to pay ever increasing amounts of their income in, in rent, or they've had to save much more of their income to be able to afford a deposit to, to buy a house. And the, the figures here in, in Britain are staggering. So in the 1990s, if you were a a low to middle income household, you can afford a deposit for an average house in the UK for saving uh, at a normal rate for about three years. And today, the same uh, kind of income level of households would take them 20 years to save just for a, a deposit for, for an average house. Um, and similarly, when you look at rents, so if you were in the private rental market in the 1980s, you were spending about 10% of your income on rent, whereas today it's up at 36% on average and it's much higher in places like London. And so I think we've really, there's a kind of a, a truth that we've yet to confront in this country and many other countries, which is the trillions of pounds which have been amassed through the property market in recent decades through this uh, housing boom. This wealth has come straight out of the pockets of those who don't own property, because when the value of a house goes up or the price of a house goes up, the value of the land underneath it is, is really what's driving it. And obviously that nothing new has been produced. It's just the, the value of the land going up. And we know, you know, from the early days of the classical economists that this is just pure economic rent. It's not wealth creation, it's wealth uh, extraction. Uh, and so the overall picture over the long term is that this is really a zero-sum game. Um, and that the, the wealth that's been accumulated uh, from from those who've accumulated wealth through the property market, this has come at the expense of current and future generations who don't own property and will see more of their incomes eaten up through higher rents or having to save more to put down uh, a deposit. So it's been an absolute key part of this rising story of, of inequality, I think, over the past kind of three to four decades. And I think this is borne out, actually, in Tom's Piketty's book, Capital in the 21st Century, although he doesn't actually 
allude to it in the book. His data Ooh. kind of highlights it. <laughs> yeah, so I was pleased to see you uh, pointed that out and uh, the the good research by Rognil to reveal yeah. that uh, whilst uh, wealth has increased faster than uh, economic growth rates. It's been the land component that's driven that. It's not been capital itself. And that's really uh, so endemic of the poor analysis of economics that that neoclassical two-factor production analysis uh, uh, drives uh, leading analysts towards, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And a key aim of the book, really, uh, part of it at least, was to kind of look at what's happening in economic theory, kind of shifting from the from the early pioneers of political economy, people like Adam Smith, David Ricardo, John Stuart Mill, Henry George, who, you know, land was was absolutely key to their understanding of 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 kind of uh, not only uh, not only how the economy works, but also how wealth is 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 ended up being distributed with an, an economic rent being a key part of that. And then going from that position to where we are uh, over time to the emergence of neoclassical economics, where land was basically kind of neglected, it was kind of folded into capital as being the same thing. And there was no sort of special properties given to land. And there was no recognition of that unearned, that unearned income component, which was very much recognized by the classical economists, that that kind of disappeared, um, uh, which is when you think about it, it's quite... <laughs> quite an extraordinary thing given how much prominence it was given to by the um by the classical economists and so part of the the book was really to look at you know what what happened there and, and or, but also to try and bring back land right to the forefront of economic theory and economic thinking because if we want to understand some of the key challenges of of the modern economy in the 21st century you know we need to be think we need to be recognizing that land is absolutely key to that so whether that's inequality whether that's the housing crisis that we face in many countries whether that's actually financial instability with the kind of booms and busts land is absolutely key to all of these uh, and it's really strange to think that actually it's it's just something that's not that's been completely overlooked by the majority of the mainstream economics profession of recent decades Listeners, we're talking to Laurie McFarlane. He's co-author of the book Rethinking the Economics of Land and Housing. He's also the economics editor at Open Democracy, a non-for-profit global media outlet. So, Laurie, uh, I love this line in the book, the landowner monopolises the proceeds of growth. So what what we really um, what we really mean by there is uh, again if we if we go back to the example um, that I if we kind of go back to the very beginning of when land became um, private property we have uh, land being something that's uh, fixed in supply it's inherently finite we can't create more of it even if we wanted to uh, and as soon as that was turned into private property landowners were put in a very privileged position because. Um, they were they were basically the gatekeepers to an essential resource that everyone needs to use. So everyone needs to use. We need space to live, uh, to work, and everything else. Um, and when we have over time the, the economy growing with population and with economic growth, uh, the kind of dynamism of of capitalism that emerged following the establishment of private property, you then have a growing demand against interacting with something that is fixed in supply, which is which is land. Um, and so over time, as there's a economic growth and population growth, landowners, uh, the, the, the rent component, if you like, simply increases. And so landowners are able to absorb much of the value that's being created in an economy simply by uh, charging higher rents or 
uh, or, or benefiting from capital gains on the on the value of the of the property uh, that they have. Um, and this is something interestingly that you know I mentioned previously about the classical economists. Many of them they actually recognised this, so they actually they actually feared if this was allowed to go unchecked and that landowners were were able to kind of absorb or usurp so much of the wealth that's been created in society, they feared that this would undermine the political legitimacy of the private property system itself. That's a system that they believed in, but they thought that this would undermine it. And so they sought to limit the extent to which landowners could make these unearned windfall gains at the expense of the rest of society and kind of absorb so much of the growth uh, uh, that was that was taking place. And so they sought to limit that through taxation and other means. And obviously that went out the window uh, uh, with the rise of modern economics. And so what we've seen in many countries, certainly the UK and, and I know in Australia as well, is that an increasing amount of the wealth that's being generated in society is being usurped by landowners. It's going to landowners through basically through economic rent coming at the expense of of uh, labour and enterprise. Uh, mm. And I think we're starting to see that play out in some of the data, although the data's, uh, the, the other odd thing in many countries is that the data on this, uh, it, because the economic profession hasn't paid much attention to land, it's often hard to get the actual data. But the data that we do have certainly bears this out, that the amount that land is, is sort of usurping landowners, is, is, is usurping lots of the gains that's happening from economic growth. Another term I love in the book uh, is residential capitalism. And I note that you've got some great figures pointing out how uh, outright ownership is now greater than mortgage ownership. And uh, that, in a way, reflects this uh, greatest transfer of wealth in living memory, one of your uh, fantastic op-eds I I uh, read and uh, published in our ma- Progress magazine recently. And, uh, yeah, this this tension between uh, ensuring that uh, more people own property than rent has been the usual play upon society where uh, they recognise, in a way, uh, the powers that be, that if uh, we do get towards a 50-50 sort of split between renters and property owners, then more people are going to arc up about the need for some form of uh, land value taxation. But you're saying in the UK it's actually gone the other way and now uh, those enjoying the first-come, first-served economy uh, uh, have really cleaned up. They're they're dominating the home ownership market. Yeah, certainly. So in the in the UK, um, we've seen a, a quite a dramatic transformation in the in the housing market. Say over the certainly since World War II, um, and it's maybe just worth sort of t- touching on that briefly because it does have a have a have a huge huge implications for where we've got to today. Um, after after World War II, you had a, a consensus really emerge, partly as a result of the bombings of the wars and and and, and different governments that the the government should have a, a a key function of government should be to basically provide affordable public housing and make land available for housing, and that was combined with kind of strict mortgage regulation and taxation on property and other things. It was quite a um, you know a, a, throughout that period up until about the nineteen seventies. Um, house prices were kind of kept in in check, but beginning in the in the nineteen seventies and into the nineteen eighties, we saw quite a dramatic shift um, uh, in the way in the kind of the the policies that that, that framed the housing market. So we saw, for example, um, 
the state withdrawing from the supply of of housing, and that was left to the to the private sector. Um, we also saw the selling off of lots of the public housing through the Margaret Thatcher's right to buy policy. And significantly, we had the deregulation of the financial sector and of the mortgage credit market, which kind of unleashed a, a flood of new mortgage lending into the economy. Um, and we saw various subsidies introduced for homeownership. And this was really part of a wider vision that the Conservative government had to create what they called a, a property owning democracy. So they, they, they wanted their idea was to let increase the number of people that own their own home to give people a stake in private property. Um, and that was successful, remarkably successful for quite a long time. Homeownership increased dramatically from the 1950s right the way through to the 1990s. And in the 19, I think it was the 1970s, we reached the point where more people owned their home than rented their home. And as that continued, obviously, that then plays out uh, through the kind of uh, the political economy dynamic, because obviously, if you have an electorate where the majority of people own their home and the majority of people's wealth is tied up in the property market, they obviously have an interest in house and kind of maintaining or extending their asset wealth through house price inflation. Um, and politicians kind of face a tension between, on the one hand, of maintaining or enhancing the asset wealth of those who own property and dealing with the growing affordability issue for those who don't own property. Because it, we got to a position where about 70% of the population were property owners, obviously that, that really take precedence politically. But the side effect of all of this, as we discussed, is because of the kind of throwing the kitchen sink at trying to at the property market, the side effect was that house prices to incomes just exploded. And although easier mortgage lending conditions and various subsidies papered over this for a while, we got to a tipping point where eventually house prices were so high and, and so out of touch relative to incomes that homeownership began to fall because it was just so unaffordable for first-time buyers. And in the UK, at least, homeownership's been falling since about 2003 uh, quite dramatically. And, and what we're seeing is a, a, a kind of, well, we speculate in the book that we're kind of seeing a re-emergence of the patterns that, that, that really characterised uh, the beginning of the 20th century where on the one hand, you have people who own property outright. Um, and that's often in, in the UK, what we call a baby boomer generation who kind of bought property uh, in the year, decades after the Second World War and it rode the wave of rising house prices that have paid off their mortgage and who have kind of got these uh, property assets without any debt. And on the other hand, you've seen the massive rise in private renters who are people who, who now don't have any prospect of owning property because it's, um, it's, it's kind of out with, the, out with their means. Um, and yeah, so we have the, the rise now of, of, on the one hand, people who own property outright and then the rise and then people who rent from them. And the kind of the, the, the point where we've had for the past few decades where owning a home with a mortgage was quite a common thing. Unless something changes, it might be the case that that was kind of a blip within history, actually, that kind of can't be repeated, where large amounts of people could could get a mortgage and try and own a home, because now prices are just so high that it's just not happening. Laurie McFarlane, uh, co-author of Rethinking the Economics of Land and Housing. Now, uh, you talked about political economy. In the political world, we often have uh, checks and balances of government, uh, the court system, uh, police. But in economics, uh, what should our checks and balances be when it comes to uh, our three major factors of production, land, labour and capital? 
So when you say checks and balances, what do you mean by checks and balances? Do you well, mean- if the the government gets out of hand, the courts can step in to some extent. Um, you know, if the courts get out of hand, government can uh, re-engineer the high court and so forth. Uh, when it comes to economics, though, uh, for a long time we've sort of just let uh, policy makers be and uh, the insiders have ha- been able to sculpt those policies um, in their direction in terms of rent-seeking. Uh, but it's great that uh, more and more NGOs are coming on board to really uh, shine a light on the wisdom of so many centuries of learning when it comes to economics. I certainly think that um, there is a real sense that now more and more people and and you know NGOs and other organisations are, are are starting to kind of wake up to uh, the fact that there is something quite disturbing or quite wrong about the way that our economies are now functioning and the kind of problems that that's causing for large parts of the, the population. And I think the challenge, though, is, as ever, is how does that translate into political change? Because we all know that politics is a very uh, messy process that has lots of vested interests um, in it. And I think the, the challenge, certainly here in the UK and I know in other countries as well, is when it comes to land, the, the amount of interests uh, that governments face in order to keep the show on the road and keep land values very high and keep keep house prices rising is very powerful. So on the one hand, you have, uh, as I mentioned earlier, normal homeowners, actually, which is the majority of the electorate. So it's not a kind of small, uh, you know, elite vested interest. It's actually a lot of the population have, a, have an interest in keeping the show on the road, because if land values were to fall, their wealth would reduce and some of them might end up in negative equity. The other big interest is obviously the banks, because we're in a situation now where um, most of uh, big banks' balance sheets are secured against land values. Uh, and again, if politicians did something that might reduce or you know, deflate land values, uh, you, might, uh, you might risk putting banks' balance sheets in quite a precarious position. Uh, and of course, the other one is is the big developers, the private developers in in, in the UK, who obviously uh, business model depends largely on 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 land values continuing to to increase. And so, from the politicians' perspective, uh, they face lots of different interests to basically try and and not do anything about this and to try and keep keep the show on the road. And I think the challenge for us is how do how do we construct a, a, an agenda, a policy agenda for change that really addresses these issues. Uh, and, and really fixes the land market in a way that's politically palatable and in a way that won't risk, uh, you know, creating big winners and losers or, or creating a big crisis overnight because politicians won't do that. And I think that's the real challenge. It's not necessarily what do we need to do in policy terms. That's a kind of easy thing. The hard bit is how do you actually, you know, how do you sell it in a way which makes politicians do it? Yes, well, uh, we were very interested in your colleagues at the New Economics Foundation and their reframing the economy uh, type document. Uh, seems like there's been quite a bit of work in terms of trying to to figure out the levers to uh, values-based communications platforms. And, uh, yeah, here we are talking about land tax and economic rents, unearned income. So how how do you see that world when, uh, you know, we do have some comedians around the world. I know Dominic Frisbee in the UK is doing some good work, but how do we actually break this down for the everyday person? 
Yeah, I mean that's the key. That is the key challenge, and and as I say, that I think for me the key challenge is that there are some areas when we're talking about wider economic uh, reform where it's it's slightly easier because you can easily paint a picture which shows that there are a, a tiny elite kind of benefiting at the expense of of others. Whereas when it comes to the land and, and housing issue, many of, for example, like my my parents' generation, many of them have benefited dramatically from from this process of rising land values because they were encouraged to buy property. Lots of them got the whole the property market. Lots of them have, have kind of benefited so much from this. And they're kind of um uh people have have come to almost expect it as some kind of entitlement uh, that they should be able to get this. Um it, uh, even though of course it's 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 increasingly evident that most people aren't going to be able to get this now because um the land prices are so high, so much economic rent has already been extracted. And so I think there's a there's a real challenge that we all have and about how do we communicate this? Uh, how do we speak about it in a way that, that resonates with people? How do you kind of build alliances with different stakeholders in society in order to affect change? Because that's what it's really going to take. There simply aren't enough at the moment anyway, although the amount of people stuck in the private rented market who are who are the real losers from this they're growing minority but there's still a, a minority um and you still have a situation where most people are are homeowners and who kind of you know if you ask them they would probably want to see house prices go up further because it increases their wealth and so you need to kind of uh, how do we construct a dialogue among society which gets across the point that actually ever increasing house prices and land prices is not a good thing it's a damaging thing it's a harmful thing it's increasing inequality it breeds financial instability and it's contributing towards a significant housing crisis that's that's harming lots of people and and that's the area where i think we need to do a lot more work because um uh you know it's it's easy to to talk about the economics of it or you know for you and i to talk about economic rent and uh you know unearned income but it's much more difficult to construct a narrative with the wider population about that and 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 convince politicians to do something about it and and like you say there's been some work about how we start to do that but i think we've got a long way to go yeah do we ever but one place on the planet that uh, is doing pretty well and uh Listeners will have picked up on on uh, Laurie's uh, thick Scottish accent. Uh, can you, you tell us what's happening in Scotland? Because there seems to be report after report coming out of the Scottish Land Reform Group uh, nearly every week, and uh, there's some momentum gathering there. Scotland is a is an interesting case. By way of background for for anyone that pre- perhaps isn't familiar with what's happened there politically, so uh, back in 1999, Scotland was granted devolution, which meant that it got its own parliament within the United Kingdom and had significant powers devolved to to, uh, to, to a Scottish parliament. And as soon as that happened, one of the long-standing issues in Scotland was around land and land ownership, because Scotland uh, has, and, and still has to some extent, one of the most concentrated uh, patterns of land ownership in the world. Um, lots of aristocratic estates that are just owned from who, the same people that owned it for kind of thousands of years due to some you know quirk of history. So after the Scottish Parliament was formed, there was a process of a real debate around land reform as an issue, as something that, that we should seek to try and uh, look at and, and, and take quite seriously. And there was quite a lot of reforms that happened in the early 2000s, but that was mainly looking at the kind of rural estates, so reducing concentration of ownership in, in rural Scotland through allowing communities to kind of buy out land, etc. What's happened more recently, however, though, in terms of the past few years, is the land reform agenda has has grown and 
began to look not just exclusively at rural ownership issues, but around the much bigger issue of, or the much broader issue, sorry, of that land is not just about rural, it's about urban and rural, and looking at the issues that we've been talking about today, about uh, its role in, in kind of the housing crisis and inequality and, and all that kind of thing. And just last year, a new uh, body was set up in Scotland called the Scottish Land Commission, which is a, a public body tasked with overseeing all, all issues to do with the land economy, etc. And that obviously includes housing. And there's been some really exciting things happening. So I, I did a paper for them kind of highlighting a number of these issues. Um, they've just commissioned some work looking at different ways to implement land value tax. It's something that, that the government's looking at quite seriously of, you know, how, you know, if it was to be implemented, uh, you know, what, what would be the best way to do it? How it's the best way of valuing land, et cetera. Um, and it's really an issue that's kind of risen up the agenda quite a bit. Um, and it's something that I think because the land issue has been you know, rumbling on now, as I said, since the early 2000s, it's got it's quite a big political issue. The population are quite aware of it, uh, more so than in the other parts of, of the UK. And so I think there is a bit of an opportunity now, hopefully, that with the Scottish Land Commission, with political uh, support, but also with the wider awareness that, that's, that's building, that we may see, hopefully, some action looking towards uh, perhaps looking at introducing land value tax and other reforms in order to try and address some of this. Mm, beautiful, Laurie, beautiful. Well, uh, unfortunately, we're going to have to wrap up there, but uh, thanks so much for your time. And-